If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm recording. All right. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. This is episode 42. I'm your host, Jim R. Uh, today we have our friend Christopher P joining us for uh, an interview about his life of addiction and recovery. How are you doing today, Chris? Doing fantastic. Thank you. All right. That's awesome. So let's dive in and let's talk about growing up a little bit. Sure. I grew up in Utah, uh, just outside of Salt Lake City. And I had, uh, my dad was in the military. And so we had a kind of raised like we were at boot camp. Okay. And we have a big family. Uh, we, we were a church-going family. I have seven brothers and sisters. On the wow. second old. Wow. It's a, it's a lot. And, uh, you know, things were going pretty good in life, I'd say. You know, Dad was a, <clears throat> he was a little bit of an authoritarian, and that's okay. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> maybe around was, when I was eight. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to ask if was he abusive at all. Uh, not physically, but verbally. Okay. Or emotionally. Um, and then, you know, you ask, people ask me that sometimes and I'm like, are we just being, you know, big wussies about it? I, is that how you act to kids? And maybe, I don't know. Maybe. I have the he, same thing because some people <laughs> tell me they're like, you know, you have to understand you were a kid, so you're not being a wuss. Um, cause one of the things is us men we're raised to be tough. That's right that we're not supposed to be sensitive to those type of things. But I think it's okay to be sensitive. You know what I mean? I, I don't think you're a wuss. I think it's just you're a sensitive guy if that's the case. I think we ended up being tough. We I only have two sisters <clears throat> out of those seven siblings. So most of us are boys. And uh, I think that has an effect, you know, on how, how dad raises the kids. You can yell a little more. Uh Either way, when I was around eight, my mom got sick. Uh, she got, maybe it was eight or nine, she got cancer. And uh, <clears throat> she ended up dying when I was 11. And really, that was a long process of being in the hospital, being sick. And so she was really out of, out of the picture maybe when I was nine or 10. And then she was just gone at, when I was 11. And that that's a big deal. I, you couldn't have told me it was a big deal at the time. I just wanted to be tough all the way through it and uh you know i know my dad went nuts he and she had a brand new baby too she died two months after she had my youngest brother michael and so wow. there was a you know all the way up from my brother was 16 i was 11 all the way down to a little infant <clears throat> and uh that really changed the whole trajectory of my childhood I'll say that uh there was an instance where <laughs> i'll just throw this in there because it was such a uh, you know, it really affected me the rest of my life. Um, we found this big bag of pornography in the field. Like there was this big field and somebody had put a giant plastic bag full of pornography out in the field and we found it. And it was, uh, 
it just twisted my little mind up. I must have been 10 or 11 at the time. And uh, we left it out in the field and we'd just go visit it <laughs> from time to time. Did you, did, was it, uh, not to be gross or anything, was it something that, that turned you on or did you not understand it yet? I didn't understand it when I first okay. saw it. And, uh, but it did have, it still kind of tapped into an obsessive part of my mind, uh, yeah. nonetheless. And it wasn't Playboys, I'll put it like that. It was some pretty hardcore magazines. Okay. Um, <clears throat> So those are some those are some highlights. Uh, my dad got married shortly thereafter. Uh, he got remarried to another woman, and you know they're still married after all this time. Uh, it was not easy, and uh, I ended up running away from home at age fifteen, and I never returned. How did um, how did your stepmom treat you? She was nice. She was, uh, it was, it got a little abusive after my mom passed away, like the yelling and the anger. And she was kind of in it with the rest of us in the barrel ride with the rest of us. Uh, and she was always nice. Uh, she didn't, <laughs> she took on seven kids and all of a sudden, uh, that is, yeah. so, when you know, you I look back about it now, you realize that's, that's a big deal. Seven kids. Wow. That's insane. And she got pregnant on the honeymoon. So there was, Oh my that, God. That was the seventh kid, I believe. So, and my youngest sister, uh, you know, there, there are a few things I had my half, my family was very uh, religious. The, my dad's side, my mom's side were all addicts and alcoholics. They were religious too, I guess, but they were all uh, drinkers, heavy drinkers and drug users and uh, so I got exposure to both of that. Um, you know, I tried a cigarette or two when I was younger. I didn't know what I was doing. I just, you know. How old were you? Eight years old. I tried one uh, of my that's, that's very young. And he knew that I tried it, too. <laughs> it's Benson and Hedges. Who knew? Your dad? My grandpa did. He knew oh, that your I grandpa it. did. Yeah. And uh, one of the neighbor kids forced me to have a drink at his house one time, maybe when I was 10. It was like a diet. No, it was tab and vodka, which was absolutely disgusting. I remember throwing it up and they were wasted. And I walked home thinking that was stupid. And so I didn't really, you know, I didn't really get into that stuff. Uh, I remember sitting in uh, driver's ed. So I was 15. It was just right before I ran away from home, really. And some kid behind me was like, hey, do you want to smoke some pot after school? And I didn't even hesitate. I was like, hell yeah, <laughs> let's go do that. Yeah. And as soon as I did that, and as soon as I realized that smoking pot could like take away all the pain I was feeling and just remove me out of the situation, it was all over. Like I was off to the races. It had a numbing effect for you. Totally. So how old were you when you first tried pot? 15. Okay. And uh, it didn't take me very long. Like, I'd say within the first month of trying drugs, I had already tried LSD and meth, which was prevalent in the area. All the same? Is that within the same time frame when you first tried weed? Yeah, just within so you a went very from short weed to that heavy shit. You went to the heavy shit real fast. Yeah. And it, it dominated me real fast. I remember because uh, I had a job washing dishes at the local Chinese restaurant. And I w went over to smoke some pot with my buddy Wes and 
his mom was uh, she was involved in cooking meth. And so she had he had some really this is back in the 90s when meth was uh, something a little different than it is now. But uh, we I remember smoking some of that with him and I went to work, washed the dishes better than I've ever washed it before. Think it's skipping the whole way home like this is awesome. This is the best thing I've ever tried. <laughs> yep. And it just took over from there. I was a little addict. And uh, my dad had tried to send me to rehab, I think, uh, once. And that didn't work out well because he said they were going for a three-day a three-day evaluation. And at seven days into it, I was losing my mind. And it basically couldn't be controlled, which is why I left the house. He told me, you know, you can't be here and use drugs. And so I said, okay, cool. Well, then I'm out. And, and this is left. when you were 15. Yeah. And, you know, whatever we were, I had a good work ethic and I was a hard worker. And uh, I uh, used to buy, I remember buying weed from my friend. I, I knew a lot of locals around uh, through my older brother who also was doing the same things I was doing. And uh, I remember buying uh, an eighth of weed and I was like telling this guy, I'm going to roll it in the joints and I'm going to sell it before school starts. He's all, well, Chris, you're thinking too small. You need to buy yourself an ounce of wheat. That's all. Can I do that? Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> and uh, from that from that moment on, like every check that I got for the rest of my life for 40 years, really, or 30 years, however long until I was 46, um, I spent my entire check on drugs and then would sell them and get my money back uh, to pay my rent and things like that. That just was the cycle of my entire life, uh, starting way back when I was 15 years old. I'd get my McDonald's check because I worked at McDonald's uh, later on, working for three twenty-five an hour. Hmm. You know, you get your couple hundred dollars, get a ball of meth, sell it, <laughs> and uh, have enough to go the whole week. So you always had your supply. Where, where were you getting it from at such a young age? <sighs> well, I, uh, my older brother was uh kind of into that crowd but i was also a little networker and i just wanted to always top what my older brother was doing so uh, i just managed to find when i left home i literally found the only crack house in the neighborhood and that's where i was living probably wasn't the only one but it seemed like it seemed like it to me at the time and uh, a lot of people came through that house all the time there was a lot of meth being moved through that house and uh what was it like living there there was a lot of older people and they would, uh, you know, sometimes they would, like, I remember one time walking into the house, everyone was watching football. There must've been 10, 15 guys there watching football and someone had, uh, someone handed me a bottle of, uh, it was maybe a little pint of uh, some type of whiskey, horrible whiskey. They're like, hey, it's a little plumber. That's my last name. So not be anonymous and blow my cover there, but it's a little plumber. <laughs> Give him some booze. And they, and, and, you know, the, the chanting my name and whatever. And I chugged the whole pint, wanted to just retch. And then somebody tossed me the keys and they're like, hey, go drive and get us some burgers at McDonald's. Don't you work at McDonald's? <laughs> and I totally, oh, I totally ran the car into the planter pots at the McDonald's and, uh, <laughs> came in wasted it wasn't too far away but i made it home but i mean that's the kind of people i was living with like they just had no regard for anything 
and uh, they, they were all in their early 20s too so they're just a bunch of numbskulls as well uh lots of drugs going around lots of uh lots of parties lots of booze and i wasn't necessarily into drinking a lot i drinking always made me throw up that would come later but uh definitely like to do in the drugs i was gonna say it sounds like drugs were your thing <clears throat> it was so, uh oh go ahead no i was gonna say so what type of you said there was a lot of drugs um like specifically what what type of st- stuff did you see in the crack house besides crack obviously well there was a lot of crack they, they were doing a lot of cocaine in fact uh I, I remember moving in with these other two guys because time time kind of moved forward and I, I found another little place and they were uh they were really into their cocaine in the strip club and they would go down to the strip club and get a you know they just would go through gobs of cocaine every night like a half ounce of cocaine uh and people would be constantly coming over to buy meth. And there was me, 17 years old, sitting on the couch, uh, dishing it out to people. And uh, it just just all worked out that that's what I was doing um, <clears throat> and was being really successful at it, too. So I saw all the drugs. Uh, you know, we took a lot of LSD. There was a lot of cocaine. There was a lot of meth. Heroin came around a little bit, but that wasn't my thing at the time. Uh, but you tried it? I did try it, but it wasn't my, th- it wasn't my deal. Um, I do recall at the, at the house I'm talking at, um, there was always like way too many people in whatever house we were in. So it was a little apartment. Cops were always being called. And uh, this bonehead, uh, someone, someone knocked on the door one morning and this guy, op- you know, one of the people at our house opened the door, blew a hit of pot and whoever's face was standing at the door. Well, well, it was the sheriff with our eviction notice. And uh, he kindly handed it to us. And they came back about 20 minutes later with the whole, you know, the whole squad. And uh, I was only 17. So I got roused up off the couch and there wasn't a drug to be found in that house. All the drugs were done. No one had any drugs. There was tons of paraphernalia. I had, uh, I watched this police officer meticulously pick up every little piece of this white deodorant off the floor in the bathroom and then arrest me on it saying it was cocaine of course it was just stupid and they they took me to the juvenile detention center up in clearfield uh and i remember getting hosed down like you remember rambo one where they hosed down rambo before they put him in the jail yeah total scene like that and uh i just you know ultimately I got out of that, but, uh, and the charges were dropped ultimately because there wasn't actually cocaine on the bathroom floor, but it started a, a series of events. I got arrested several more times, uh, after that, before I was 18. And then I got arrested, uh, just a month after I turned 18. What type was, of stuff were you, what type of things were you arrested for? I had, I had an ounce of, uh, methamphetamine and an ounce of mushrooms in my pocket when I got arrested. Why were they searching you? <laughs> uh, well, turns out I was in a car with no registration and the guy was speeding and gotcha. Yeah. Uh there was another time and that you know what those charges were uh ultimately dropped for whatever reason, but charges that stuck, they arrested me walking down the street. I was walking down the street. I'm sure I looked like a complete high ass walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs> walking here, 
And uh, the only thing I had was a bag full of drugs, you know. So uh, that was the cops that arrest me too. But um, it took me a long time to uh, to get through that initial. You know, initially they just put me on. I did some jail time, like sixteen days in jail, sixteen plus seven, so it was like twenty three days in jail plus uh, you know three years probation at the time. And uh, probation I'm, sucks. It did. It took me six years to get off that probation because I just couldn't stop smoking pot. That's when I really started drinking a lot of beer. You're lucky that they didn't send you to jail for that. Yeah, I am lucky. Because no I was on probation. I uh, I had gotten arrested with a few pounds of weed. So when I was on probation, I peed uh, dirty twice. And uh, he says, I got to send you back to court. So... I was full of shit at the time, but what I did was I went and signed up for a rehab. I didn't give a shit. I was still going to find my way of smoking, but I wanted to show the judge that I was addicted and not an asshole that was just taking whatever. So I didn't want to go back to jail. I was only in there for a night or two, but it's a long night and it makes you realize, holy shit, if I have to do some time, this is going to be rough. That's right. <laughs> it, it, it did give me a good scare. Uh, not, not like that was the last time I ended up there still do stupid stuff, you know? Yeah, that wasn't my last foray in jail. That's for sure. Uh, so, finally, I like, say, you go first. Oh, I'm the kind of guy that uh, finally, it just dawned on me that this is the game you're in and you need to play it and you need to get out of it. And you're on probation for so long, pull your head out of your ass and do it. And I did it. And in, in the meantime, I somehow managed to, I was court ordered to get a GED. So I did. Really? Yeah. Cause I had dropped out of high school at 15 and never went back. And they said, go get your GED. So that was a good thing. And somehow in the whole mess of that, I ended up taking a pre ACT test, which I, I was able to use to get into community college with an ACT score. And so I got into community college and ultimately transferred to a university and was like well on my way. And I did ultimately did get my bachelor's degree. But were uh, you using during this time or did you cut back? Uh, the whole time. I partied okay. it up. So it didn't stop? No, never stopped. And never stopped selling weed and never stopped selling meth just the whole time. Uh, I got more, I got smarter about it for sure, but um, never stopped. How did you end up getting good grades? I mean, that must have been difficult. Uh, well, I don't want to say I'm like overly smart, but I, I, I get I did the, I did the reading and I just managed to, my trick to getting through college was to get to know my professors. So here's an example. Uh, I got caught. We had, we were having a little after a graduation party one year and, uh, you know, the cops knock on my door and they're like, listen, bud, you've got pot billowing out of your front window and we're going to do it the hard way or we're going to do it the easy way. So I said, okay, uh, hold on a minute. Shut the door. I let everyone know the cops are going to be coming in. <laughs> then I opened the door and everyone's scrambling. And I, and as do I, I scramble back to my room and throw a bunch of weed out the front window, which was an apartment complex. So it landed on the lawn. Uh, someone was flushing their weed down the toilet. And ultimately I got pinned with uh, a bowl of weed, which is nothing. Uh, but they sent me to jail for six months. That was a small town. So they sentenced wow. me 
uh, and it was work release. So I got three months regular jail time or I got six months work release. So I convinced him to let me out six months work release. And as I was going to school, uh, one of the professors I had, the class was just really hard. It was pissing me off. And he, I, you know, I got to know him after class and I was like, listen, I don't know why I'm not doing well in your class. And by the way, the class was uh, sociology of sex and something or else. So it was like a really you know, risque class. And I was the only person that talked. There's a bunch of people that wouldn't talk in there. He's all, Chris, you can't, uh, you can't drop my class because you're not getting a good grade. You're the only one that talks. Huh. So what do you want out of the class? And, well, I want an A. Well, just show up and talk. And then you can take the test and I'll give you an A. It's like, great. Uh, Doesn't sound like a bad deal. That's right. That's just a lesson. You go to class, you talk to the teachers and you get good grades and you do, you know, do what you can. But um, so I did, that was sometimes you're smart enough to, you know, not have to do as much work as others to get the good grades. That's right. You can do very little work for an A if you're smart about it. There's always exactly. those overachievers that are like, what are you doing? <laughs> the, pay, the syllabus says you do this, you just do this, that's it. You don't do more, you don't do less. They're not grading you on extra stuff. So um, <clears throat> that was a rough, uh, it was a small town. I did, I did, uh, I think I got out of jail in four months on that. Uh, How old were you when you went to jail for six months? That was in 2000, oh, 2001. And so I was uh, 24 years old. Okay. And I kept it a secret the whole time from my family. So this is great. Where, so I where'd out. they think you were? They thought I was just going to school. And I was, since I got out during the day, I could call them and stuff. And uh, I got out like the day before Thanksgiving, I remember. And so it worked out great. And uh, <laughs> they, they found out later on. But... Told them later on. Okay. Yeah, I told them later on. So what was, you, what was your situation like with um, employment? employment i've always been a hard worker so i always had a good job and i've always had a job that i can you know kind of work a little bit around my my deal so going through college uh we like to smoke pot so we'd get jobs where we could go to work high so we did some, the telemarketing gig was big back in the late 90s um i delivered pizza and then i could you know deliver weed at the same time pretty stereotypical pizza oh really <laughs> And, uh, of course, we're selling weed, too, so that made a little money. And uh, when I got done with college, I got a degree in history and sociology, so I wasn't, like, immediately, you know, high in high demand for work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I managed to get a job at a software company, and I was kind of self-taught and making my own – I made computers and – knew my way around a computer so I got a job doing tech support and I ended up staying there for 15 <clears> years and I did really well at that company I think I started there I don't know maybe 18 bucks an hour and I made over a hundred thousand dollars a year when I left because uh, I was selling their product it was like traveling the east coast selling their product so I worked my way all the way up through the, the tech support department into the sales department and uh, it was really a good job for me. It That's did great. allow me to. Uh, you said it allowed you to do drugs. It allowed me to do a lot of drugs, and that's. How do you mean? My, my mo was always to find a boss that likes drugs and sell drugs to my boss. And so, 
<laughs> the head of the sales department of that software company had a lot of money and he wanted a lot of drugs. And that, that actually took me down a path that I don't know if I should have gone down, but. How do you go about finding out that your coworker uses? How does that even come up in conversation? That's a good question. I think, uh, I feel like your brain has an antenna in it and you know, people know what you're about to a degree. And I know what you're about to a degree, just from my intuition. And, you know, when I, when I had a pocket full of drugs that need to be sold, I can go into a crowded room and find someone to sell them to. Just the, the, the things that I can bring up in a conversation uh, that can, you know, some double speak, uh, I couldn't think of anything specific, but you know, you might drop some key words and if you see their eyeballs light up, you know, I could come around and make a joke about a Vicodin or something. And if you think that's funny or you're interested in Vicodin, well, you're probably going to let me know. And since I have a pocket full of Vicodin, all of a sudden we're going to be talking about that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, the painkillers, those were, I remember those felt good. A little too good, obviously. Well, though, isn't it funny how everyone, they, they let everyone have one in the United States at age 18. Let's get your wisdom teeth out and give you a pocket full of Vicodin to see how that yep. works. And that was the first exposure to painkillers I had. And again, awesome. Loved it. You know, I think I did painkillers for 10 years. Most really? Of my, most of my 30s. And I never missed a beat. I just always had them. I knew some old lady that uh, got a huge giant bottle of uh, the OPs. The, the, uh, I can't remember the brand name of them. The Oxycontins. Okay. And uh, trade her weed, and because she she would rather take the weed than those, and then I'd have a, her prescription every month, and that was great. I was lucky as that I never was a person that got a lot at once, or or actually would take a lot at once. I like for me, if I took three pills, that was a lot. That is a lot. And, <laughs> um, it, I guess it is, but I mean, I've heard of some people snorting like seven eight pills a night yeah they, they, they made those 80 milligram oxy oxycontins yeah i never had an 80 um i usually got the 30s if i'm not mistaken the, the, the 30 milligram little rocks that set the blue ones uh, Ex exactly yeah and he used to um lick it and wipe it with the paper towel to get the time coating off so it was a direct hit when you swallowed it do you ever did you do that yeah, we always snorted it, but yes. Yeah, he took the time release off. And then uh, the, the 80s, they stopped selling those 80s after maybe, I don't know, 2010 or something. I can't remember they had them around anymore, but either way, yeah, we just snorted them. And that was a, that was a big deal. Snorting a 30 milligram Roxa set at once is not, not a small thing. You're a drug addict at that point. There's going to be some, <laughs> you're going to have to yeah. for that. Yeah. You become uh -huh. this point where you're, so if I, you know, if I could just do opiates once a day, <clears throat> then I would just come down once a day, but that's not how it works. So you're, you're constantly doing them all day long. So if I, if I do them five times a day, then I'm literally coming down five times a day. And this, there's this point where my tolerance level exceeds what I'm doing. And I'm in a constant state of withdrawal that I can't really overcome except by doing more and more. Yeah. And it's an awful cycle. Yeah. 
Addiction's a, a, a tricky bitch. It is. It's a slippery slope. And I never had any, I never had any doubt that I was an addict from the get-go. Like I knew I was an addict and I've got to maintain it. I was doing so many drugs that I had to make sure that I maintained. I found this feather. I found this woman, we'll leave her anonymous, uh, my ex-wife. <laughs> she, uh, you know, she liked to do drugs as much as I did. And uh, we, we, we had an understanding together that, you, you know, you suit up and show up. And that means you need to do as many drugs as you need to do to slap a smile on your face and be here to do what you need to do. There's bills that need to be paid and there's kids that we're raising and all that was happening. So my life was like, it just was going 24 hours a day. And uh, I was always a big stimulant guy. I got hooked on the opiates, but I always liked stimulants. And um, ultimately that made a big mess of things because mixing opiates with stimulants is like, you just become an idiot <laughs> over, a, over a period of time. Say one more time. I didn't hear you there. Opi- mixing. It just makes you stupid over a period of time. I mean, if you, if you. Oh yeah. Do, do painkillers and then you're smoking speed on top of it or injecting speed. You just, you can't, you can't tell your head from your ass. You're, you're wandering around. You're basically into the end. The end game of that is spinning in circles around your pile of garbage that you've piled up in your room. Yeah. Absolutely. So I was not immune to the end game. So let me ask you this. How are your relationships at the time? Friends, family, employers? How How is the relationship, you know, when you started using and as it, as it progressed, how did you maintain those relationships or not maintain them? Maybe. Well, I was always using, so I, oh, that was always a factor. And, you know, I was a people pleaser because I wanted to sell you drugs. So I had a lot of friends and I had a lot of, uh, you know, I wouldn't say I was an instigator or anything. I was quick to apologize. I made things. Uh, I felt like my relationships were well. The relationships that suffered were with direct family that wasn't using. Like people that weren't using can't really be a part of my life. And we, my dad and I always had a rocky relationship because, well, for obvious reasons, you know, we never we never settled the past. And so... He, I just always felt like I never measured up to his expectations, and he always felt like I was a drug addict that was out of control. So, you know, there would be dinners and things we'd go to, but I'd get the heck out of there as fast as I could. And uh, th- those were the relationships that suffered, really, the ones that mattered. And, uh, you know, at some point, even with even with my ex-wife, she was using and I was using, but I, I was leading a lot of lives. Like, I may sell you pot, but you can't know that I have heroin or you can't know that I have meth or you may know that I have this you may know that I have that so I have to act like a different person to everybody and it, I was literally the lead role in my life and you know acting 20 different parts and it was exhausting and I didn't realize how exhausting it was until I finally sobered up and just led one life and I'm like wow this is saving me a whole lot of energy <laughs> tell us a little bit about the kind of things you get yourself into while an active addiction was there anything that you can remember like oh i would have never done that sober you know what i mean like some of those type of moments absolutely uh pornography i thought I'll, br- I'll bring it back around uh you know the internet came about when i was growing up and the first thing that I, these guys brought us over to smoke a bowl you know they're like we've got the internet well let's see what does the internet do well they brought up and it took like 
you know, two minutes to load the picture uh, from the 56K modem. <laughs> I remember those. I remember they used to, the dial up, the, the noise, the, how annoying was that in those days? But it was literally the most vile pornographic picture you could possibly find on the internet. It was the first thing I saw on the internet. So I'm like, oh, that's great. Well, this just led me down this path of, uh, at, at one point I discovered that you can find hookers on the internet. You can find escorts on the internet. And this is where my brain just, this is a whole nother addiction. And not only are they there, but they all do drugs, <laughs> every one of them. And uh, I can tell by your picture, just what you're doing. And if I hadn't, you know, I, I sold drugs to every hooker on that list uh, throughout <laughs> You know, the, the time that I sold drugs here in Utah, it seemed like. And of course, you had to have sex with them all too. And that's that's just things that you wouldn't do if you were thinking. Like a normal person wouldn't do that. And some of those encounters I walked away from like, what the fuck did I just do? Were you ever like dangerous where you didn't use a condom or stuff like that? Uh, no, I was pretty good about that. But I'm sure there was a time or two that that happened. But I fortunately got lucky and I didn't have any issues with that but that doesn't stop the paranoia in the back of your mind you know uh like did I get did something happen what if I have this what if I have that and you know at some point I just learned to live with that and I just ignored it but um yeah was, that was an addiction that that was really hard to get rid of and, and actually that was something I had to address after I got off drugs that's something that I I've conquered now now i'm master of my own domain and i don't uh <clears throat> i don't mess around like that anymore but uh that, that was something that had to, it had to be addressed after i got sober i realized that i had a deeper problem and it went way back to when i was a kid yeah i actually understand where you're coming from so i have a sex uh, addiction issue as well yeah it's uh it's just a high it, it is, that's all it is is like an orgasm is a high and also so wait, like the thrill the thrill the chase also getting um getting yourself hooked up with a hooker and on the way there you're excited you're all your anticipatory high i call it um then finally getting your release it was it was like a cycle there to me there's different types of highs along the way but the big one is the anticipatory high it's before you even have sex and then the Sex is the next and the last high. That's right. <clears throat> That's all it is. It's just a. It's just another addiction. Did that ever mess up things in your life in any way? Like, just to give you an example for me. Like, I've cheated on many girlfriends uh, many times, and I'm not proud of that because um, I did have some good girlfriends in the past that didn't deserve that. But it was just. But if I had a chance to get high, I wanted to do it. It probably ruined every relationship I ever had. Wow, really? There's no, minus the one I'm in currently, because I'm currently in a really healthy relationship that doesn't involve any of that. Uh, but pornography and, you know, obviously going and having sex with hookers or <laughs> not not good for your relationship. No, I don't think so. I don't think most people would approve of that. <laughs> no. And it's really high risk. I mean, and, and the fact that, uh, you know, I, the 
you familiar with the harm reduction philosophy? Yes, I actually, we just did a roundtable discussion on Sunday where they had three people in the profession and uh, they discussed uh, medically assisted treatment and harm reduction as well. I got, uh, I got certified through the Utah Health Department for harm reduction a couple of years ago, and uh, I forgot all about that they would be talking about sex. You know, I was there for the, the drug part of it, but yeah, there's a whole section on sex. And of course, they, they basically consider any sex that you're having on methamphetamines to be high risk. And that doesn't surprise me at all because that you have no uh, boundaries. Like you will just go do anything to get off. Yeah. It's disgusting. It's literally the yeah, and uh, not to get like uh, too much, <clears throat> but I know I have a group member who told me that it makes you horny. Crystal meth makes you kind of horny, so that's another thing that I'm sure leads you in the wrong direction. If right. that's true, I don't know if it's just for her or whatever, but she said most people feel that way. And that doesn't mean that I didn't have, I still had sex with my wife every day, which is you know, I we won't even go down that road, but uh. <clears throat> Yeah, it ruined everything. It, that kind of behavior didn't allow me to have a functioning relationship with a woman, period, until I addressed that and I got over that. And it's possible to heal from that. I fully did. So now you control everything as far as a masturbation, having sex. It's got to be, because I've heard some of the rules where it's got to be for like you know, intimacy reasons and things like that. It can't be, a, it's the, they don't want it to be a lust thing. That's right. Well, I went, uh, I went two years completely celibate and uh, didn't masturbate or anything. And, and I, I needed to. And when I finally, you know, got with a person that I wanted to have healthy sex with, she's, we're engaged, it's going to be my wife. And uh, that's it. She's in charge. She's, she's in charge of that. It's hers to have. I'm not, I'm not getting that off myself. So I have sex with another person, not by myself, not with a computer, not with uh, someone that doesn't belong there. And, and I think that increases the intimacy in the relationship. So it has. Oh, yeah. I, I can so. imagine. So. So. What is something you've learned from all your experiences? What's something that you know that you want to have listeners know? Like, what would you say one of your um best lessons there's a guy it's, it's called the soft white underbelly it's a great youtube channel and that's one of the questions this guy uh i believe it's mark he asked is what was the what was the lesson you learned from all this or and take your time with it because some people need a few moments to think about that it's a, it's a pretty good question the lesson i learned from it i, I think about this often uh Well, I have a couple, I have a couple takeaways. One was when I smoked marijuana, the moment I smoked marijuana at 15, I stopped emotionally progressing. Like it, it just stagnated me immediately. And well, they were, say that happens with a lot of us. Yeah. And there were times throughout my addiction where I wasn't using hard drugs but I was just smoking weed and drinking beer. And I'm like, well, this is fine. And we can go years like that. But I didn't get better. I was just stagnated in this spot. And I never grew up beyond, I might as well have been an emotionally, you know, 15 to 20 year old until I threw the towel in at age 41. 
And uh, when you say I, through the towel, and you elaborate on that, I got sober at 41. I finally stopped using my body couldn't take anymore, and I I got sober through the uh, rooms of AA. But uh, you know, there's something to be said for learning those skills of uh and no one wants to learn those skills like i don't want to have to go learn how to live life at a rehab at age 40 because why don't we teach that in junior high <laughs> you know why don't we teach some life skills like that in junior high before people uh have all these issues in life but um what I really found out was what everyone else, you know, there's all these religious people in the world and they, they, there's something to it. Why are they, why are they like that? There's, and of course there's a whole bunch of assholes who are part of religion too, but yep. I can separate those out because that's what my little spirit always wanted to do. It just wanted to grow and I prevented it from growing. In fact, I convinced myself that it didn't exist. I convinced myself that I didn't have a, any light in me. And I wanted to, I turned out all the lights in the room until I was sitting in absolute darkness. And then I realized that, oh, that, that is something that I'm missing. And I wish that I had, I guess that's what it took for me to learn that. So I had to go down this really dark road to learn that, uh, you know, I have a higher power and I have, you know, some light inside of me that can shine real bright. I just have to hone it. I have to uh, feed it. Yeah, that's one of the things we have our own 10 steps. And that's one of the things I, I try and focus on there is finding that inner strength and courage in yourself. And keep in mind, I love AA. I got a lot of stuff from that. I've read the big book, I think, four times now. <laughs> I even have a special edition copy of the way it looked when it was originally published because, you know, it had a red cover. It was a much bigger book. That's why they called it the big book. Um but yeah, I'm, I'm an avid fan of AA. I think it's pretty cool what they did. And what I do is I modeled some of us uh, our steps after them. Because there's certain things that are they're good steps. And you kind of have to do, like, to me, in my mind, you ought to do step one. It's how else are you going to move forward without saying, I need to, I, I have a problem. Right. And then making amends, I think that just gets a load off your chest. Yeah. You know, no more resentments, no more stuff, no more secrets, no you know, so that's some of the stuff I, I took away from them. It's great stuff. I've come to decide that uh, I, I've separated myself from my brain after all of this. And I, I am not my thoughts. So here's, here's another takeaway. I'm not my thoughts. My brain just thinks. It's always thinking. I don't consciously think. Uh, and it's going to think about what I put into it. So if I want to sit around looking at pornography all day, smoking dope, playing video games. My brain doesn't have much to think on other than what I put into it. And so that's what it's going to think about. And it's going to obsess about stuff. And these days, oh, you know, throw in music, throw in whatever. I, I used to just listen to nonstop death metal for 20 <laughs> years. <laughs> so I didn't have anything positive to go on. And, and when I when I turned my life around, I made a decision to start putting positive things into my brain and it didn't take very long for my brain to start thinking about it. And now I've removed so many negative things out of my life and my brain turns out, turns out positive thoughts all the time. Cause that's just what it brains think. That's what they do. And they're going to think about what we put into it. So 
put in good stuff into your brain and you're going to yeah. have a better life. Yeah, absolutely. And if I put poison into my body, if I go as far as to put poison into my body, I'm going to have poison in my actions. Yeah, exactly. There's, that's, that's exactly what anger is, especially when you hold on to uh, anger specifically. You know, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It's a great quote for uh, Buddhists. But um, so how is your relationship now? You said you uh, got, I believe you said you're married. I'm engaged. You're engaged. Okay. Um, and everything's going well with that relationship? Everything's going really well. It's the best relationship I've ever been in. How, how would you tell? That's great. That's actually, that's awesome. How would you tell the listeners, how do you make the relationship work being that you're an addict? Is there anything specific you do? You know, do, do you tell her, like, I, I don't know, I have to go to my meetings. There's just, it's on the schedule no matter what. Um, how do you manage your relationship with her? Uh, she's in recovery too. So she understands she isn't, she's not as big into me. Oh, that's great. Well, yeah. I mean, that's not great. She has to go through that battle, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. it, you, to ha- I, I think that's important is to have someone that truly understands. I've had a girl break up with me because I went to too many meetings, which was two a week. And I was like, you're kidding, right? Cause I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you never know who you're going to get. That's what I'm saying. How do you manage your relationship? Like I don't know if you were doing anything different to keep her along the way, but that's great that she goes. Does she attend meetings as well on her own? No, not really. I, I I'm really upfront about what I need for self care, and as far as like, so I need to work out an hour a day, and I need a couple meetings a week, and uh, you know, other than that, we, there's a lot of kids, and I just need that's at the bare minimum, and I'm more than happy to let my partner go do what she needs to do too. Uh, for her self-care, whatever her self-care is. Do you need to go work out? Do you need to go do this? Go get it done. Let's let's make sure we're taking turns to get our self-care taken care of. Yeah, so that's one of the things you're telling the listeners that's a takeaway for you, self-care. That's right. If I don't get my hour workout in a day, I'm pretty ornery and you don't want to be around me. Yeah. So I'll just get that in. And if you can let me get that in, if you can accept that, then we're going to be gold. <laughs> Awesome. So is there anything we're getting towards the end here? Is there anything you want the people listening to to know? Anything specific, any kind of message for them? Yeah, we we can recover. Absolutely, we can recover. I was the worst of the worst. I I was the kind of guy that did the most drugs all the time. And uh, there was no, you know, no one thought that I was going to amount to anything. I was a lifelong drinker, drugger, and you can do, you can make it, you can make it work. Uh, stick around. If you're going to do, there's a lot of different ways to recovery. And I found recovery through the 12 steps. Uh, but that doesn't mean I didn't look through all the other self-help guides and read all the other books too. I mean, you can get a lot out of, you can get it out of everything and uh, just put as much energy into using, I'm sorry, put as much energy into recovery as you did into <laughs> using, and you are, you're going to be gold. It's going to be easy. I, I feel like I'm to a point now. Again, don't obsess about thoughts. If I want to go sit around and think about shooting up drugs, you know, I might have an issue after a while, but I don't do that. I just don't do it anymore. So I feel recovered. 
and it's been three and a half years and I have a really healthy relationship with myself, with my higher power, with my girlfriend, with my kids. It's great. So you just used the word recovered because I yeah. actually just had somebody that we were talking about this, that he believes in this and I am on the fence. So do you believe you're in recovery or you're just recovered? You're done for now. No, I, I'm in recovery, but I'm recovered. But just like, you know, if you have this awesome body and I go to the gym every day and I'm strong now, well, what do I got to do every day to keep my strong bod? I've got to, I've got to keep going to the gym. I can't just rest on my laurels or I'll atrophy and be done. So I have to keep us. There's a spiritual maintenance that I do every day and I'll always do it and I'll do it the rest of my life. And it just keeps getting better and better. Just like your workout routine will keep getting better and better. If you keep going to the gym, just like so, you get smarter if you read books. It's part of your routine of praying and things like that. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's important. First thing I do out of the bed in the morning is pray, and it's the last thing I do before I go to bed. That's good. Don't yeah, it works work. for some people, not others. Like me, I'm agnostic, so I don't know what to believe. But But I read about all religions. I actually just had somebody send me the Quran because I told this guy that I met at work like a customer, he was a customer. And I told him, actually, he didn't even end up buying a car, but I told him I would love to read it one day. He goes, I'll send you a cop. And, I, and he, he forced it upon me and I just got it in the mail last week. It's good to have books like that around. I'm a big advocate of uh, the Bible. The Bible's helped me a lot. Uh, yeah. And it, that's not an easy book to read, but. No, I have a Bible. I've tried to read it. It's so, it's, very, it's just difficult to understand. I think what it does for me, you can read the Bible for hours and be like, what, what did I just read? But yeah. what it does, it tunes you into a particular frequency, and that frequency is higher thinking and closer to God. Yeah. And uh, so, so you're tuning yourself in by, by, you know, if you want to read the Old Testament, don't start with Exodus. Start with Psalms and read, read the, the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And those, those make a lot of sense. They're good. They're good books. Awesome. So I think that's all we got for today. I want to thank you very much for coming on the uh, show. How, how do you think you did? You feel good? I feel good about it. Awesome. That's what I'm great to hear. And uh, my little sales pitch now, as everybody knows who listens to me already, if you like what you just heard, go to the bottom right-hand corner, you can click on our logo and subscribe. Also go below, give us a like. Check out our Facebook group and page. Um, we have a lot of information there under the events tab on the Facebook group. You'll see a bunch of Zoom meetings. Um, you can also give us a like there. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit. Just type in Addicts Anonymous on any of those. You'll, you'll see that. And that's all we have for today. So until next time, folks.